the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Understanding of the universe has evolved greatly over time. From the ancient Greeks' geocentric model, with the Earth at the center of the solar system, to Copernicus's heliocentric model, the place the sun at the center. Galileo, Newton, Kepler, Hubble, Einstein, and many more scientists were all key figures in developing our current worldview, where the universe is composed of many stars, planets, and galaxies, with our solar system an infinitesimally small part of the greater whole. By probing our limits of understanding and challenging long-held assumptions, science has evolved as a process of inquiry to uncover the mysteries of the world. Scientists studied the early universe by gazing back in time to the most distant stars in faraway galaxies. There are, however, some unresolved issues, such as stars and galaxies that appear to be much older than the accepted age of the universe, at 13.7 billion years old. Our guest today is Dr. Rajendra Gupta, and he will be discussing his fascinating new research on the history of the universe that may revolutionize our understanding of cosmology. Dr. Rajendra Gupta is a professor of physics at the University of Ottawa in Ontario. He teaches and researches astrophysics and cosmology and is currently researching the evolution of the universe and how positing a much older universe can help resolve discrepancies between our observations and current cosmological models. So, welcome to the show, Rajendra. Thank you very much for inviting me on the show. I'm so delighted to be here. Yeah, for sure. So uh, to start off, um, I was hoping you could tell us about what is the impossible early galaxy problem and why would this suggest that the universe might be older than expected? Okay, impossible early galaxy problem arose originally from the Hubble Space Telescope deep space observations, which appear to show that the galaxies are fairly well evolved to be at the early time in the universe. But then when James Webb Telescope was launched in 2021, late 2021, and started to giving observational data in the summer of 2022, uh, it was very. It became very clear that uh, the galaxies were really very large, very well evolved, large in the sense of very massive galaxies. Sizes were small, but still they looked more like the galaxies in our neighborhood. So people were worried: How can such galaxies, at so early in cosmic dawn time, essentially so early in in the age of the universe, which is called cosmic dawn, could be so massive and so much like our galaxies in our neighborhood. So they call that impossible early galaxy problem. Right, that makes sense. So uh, it sounds like, is that the main issue about why the universe might be older? Or are there other things that would point to the universe being older as well? Actually, currently, currently, this is a major issue, because one issue many times changes the whole theoretical background. For example, we we know how things evolved in the past. Newtonian physics 
Newtonian physics and Newtonian uh, interpretation of light, how light propagates was in the form of particle. It prevailed in the in the 18th century, and then come 19th century or towards the 18th end of 18th century, the uh, there were certain observations, and they were essentially not possible to be explained. Diffraction pattern from gratings, and all mm -hmm. that they could not be explained using the particle theory or corpuscular theory of Newton. So then the wave theory evolved. Wave theory became very strong throughout the 19th century, but then toward the end of 19th century and beginning of 20th century, there were observations which could not be explained, like the photoelectric effect could not be explained with the wave theory of light. So what happens? Now something else comes. Okay, Newtonian uh, theory, in a way, was brought back by Einstein to explain the the uh, the the photoelectric effect essentially. Mm -hmm. So you know things are. It is very difficult to say that there, there, is there only one thing. One thing can change the direction of our research quite dramatically, mm -hmm. and this is the observation which appears to be indicating that that the universe might be much older. But why? Why can't the galaxies, people, most people are thinking in a different way. They think the galaxies can be created very quickly because they, there was higher density of matter at that time in the early universe. And by adjusting certain models, they, were, they are saying, yes, they can create the galaxies uh, very quickly. But that is strange. Most, many people think it is stretching their models too much. You can, once you have observation, you can always try to fit something which you were not able to fit before so by adjusting things. So this is where it comes. Could there be, instead of compressing the timeline for creating the galaxies, could the timeline be stretched mm -hmm. for, the form, uh, for the formation of these galaxies? That was the reason I thought of coming up with some new model. Yeah, it sounds like it makes more sense than uh sort of changing how we understand galaxies to evolve. So how do scientists actually measure the age of the universe? So what are some techniques that they use? Actually, before I go into that, let me let me explain one little thing about this. The, your former question is that some method, there was a steady state universe theory before the Big Bang theory of universe came into existence. And based on that kind of theory, I read a paper in the later part of 2022, last year, around December or November, and that was able to explain the observations of this impossible early galaxy problem. But then that theory was in conflict with other observations of the universe that could not be explained. Okay, so this is, this is where it, I stood at that point in time. Now, you're coming to your next question. Can you repeat that, please? Yeah, so just what are some techniques that people actually use to measure the age of the universe? Okay, age of the universe is determined simply by measuring the rate of expansion. 
And rate of expansion, how does rate of expansion determine it? It's just like you have, you start from a point and you want to reach to another point, say two miles away, and you walk faster, then you will reach there in a shorter time. If you walk slower, you will take longer time. Mm -hmm. So now, if we are, can measure the rate of expansion, we can extrapolate the age of the universe. Mm -hmm. Similarly. Yes, for sure. And uh, I believe that they use uh, the redshift from distant stars and galaxies to, to measure that, right? The age of the universe. Yes, yes that's right. Yeah, because once they know the rate of expansion of the universe, then they can measure, determine, Essentially, I mean, there are other complications, but that is a simplest way of understanding the age of the universe. Now, if the redshift, as you mentioned, is not solely due to the expansion of the universe, but there are other contributing factors to the redshift, that means the expansion rate will not be as much as if the redshift was entirely due to the expansion of the universe. So this is where the tired light theory I brought in, based on which the other paper which I mentioned was able to explain the cosmic dawn observations of the galaxies. So that's where I, I thought if we combine the two models, then we might be able to create a hybrid model that we might be able to explain both. That means we would be able to slow down the expansion of the universe because part of the redshift is now contributed by tired light. And right. this is the way the age of the universe got increased. But that's not the only uh, end of story because we, we could have, I tried to put together the tired light model with the standard model, which is called the cold dark matter and lambda CDM model. And that model, lambda cold dark matter, lambda is the cosmological constant introduced by Einstein, but then later despised by him. Uh, so that was the one which was brought in in the 90s very strongly to explain the accelerated expansion of the universe, which was shown by Hubble. Before Hubble, there was a debate what is the age of the universe? When Hubble in, in the 20s, last century or 30s, the idea was the age of the universe was only 2 billion years based on the acceleration or the rate of expansion they could measure at that time. But then before the expansion in the 90s, 1990s, before the Hubble uh, telescope was launched, it was between seven and 20 billion years because people are not sure about the expansion rate of the universe. Right. Come Hubble, it was then pinned down to 13.8 billion years. So essentially, the rate of expansion is what determines this. But when I combine the lambda CDM model with the tired light model, I didn't get that kind of explanation which I was looking for. It increased the age of the universe significantly from 13.8 to about 19 point something, but the 
the uh, data of the James Webb Telescope, Cosmic Dawn, Impossible, Early Galaxy data, which we call, were not fitted by that. And mm -hmm. I was working previously with another model, which is called the covariant coupling constant model. In that one, the coupling constants vary rather than being constant, but they vary in a correlated way. They are not varying randomly. Each one is happily varying any way it likes, but they are their variation is determined by a single parameter. All these, the four constants which I have considered, this is the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the, the Planck constant, and the Boltzmann constant. Their variation is related and they, that is determined by only one parameter, one constant additional. So using that one, I created a model that could fit the existing data very well. Then I say, okay, if I hybrid that model with the, the tired light, then maybe I can explain it. And that was a surprise to me that it did the other data very well, the James Webb data. Right. So I uh, just backtracking a little bit. Um, maybe we could just talk about what is the tired light model. So I believe it's that light loses energy um, as it travels through space, right? I guess that's, is there anything that's else? Right. Other, okay. Any other details that you could tell us a bit about? Yeah, just, uh, briefly, I think that's what it is, but really it loses energy proportional to its energy and the distance traveled. Okay. And that gives you a, a formula which, uh, which is somewhat different than the Lambda CDM model. Although, although in the very small redshift domain, both the formula reduced to the same thing, which is called the Hubble's law. So both the one, this is why in the early time, when people were not able to see the galaxies too far away or high Z values, they were only seeing very close, less than a redshift of 0 0.1 or something. At that point, the, both the models, the tired light model, as well as alternate models without lambda, without the dark energy component, were able to fit observation very well. Okay. And usually this is one of the things when we try to determine something, first thing in any model is really to, uh, to re reduce it to very a small z value and see if it matches the observations at that level. Yeah, for sure. So the standard model, the lambda CDM model, so just for the sake of our, our listeners, so lambda is the cosmological constant that's causing the universe to uh, expand, um, which is related to dark energy, right? Yes. Actually, yes. Expansion originally was thought because of the big bang. You have a big bang and forces of that thing is keep it ex expanding. But then the acceleration should be, the expansion should be slowing down because gravitational pull will eventually slow it down. But then when Hubble telescope was launched, then they found, no, instead of deceleration of the universe, it is accelerating. So how can it be accelerating? Then they have to invent a force which will counter the gravity. And that is what, what the dark energy is. Yes. And then the CDM part is the cold dark matter. So that's the matter that we can't actually see, but that is affecting us gravitationally. And so we've 
seen its uh, influence throughout the universe. Exactly. You're right. Yeah, for sure. So um, just uh, continuing on, so how does your research show that the universe could actually be twice as old? So instead of 13.7, I believe it's like 20, about 28, so 27 or 28, right? 26.7 billion years, right. Actually, this is, as I said, that uh, when I didn't know it is is going to increase the age by that much because it just came out by fitting the data. So what you do normally when you have a model, you first fit the data, very early, late universe data near about us. That's the way you determine certain relationship between the model constants. Then you fit the data, which is supernovae, standard candle data. Supernovae are certain stars which explode, and in the process of explosion, they become extremely bright during certain period, and then the peak in the intensity, and from the peaking time of that intensity, we are able to derive what their really brightness is. Intrinsic brightness is, and then from that intrinsic brightness should be the same for all of them, and taking that to be a standard candle by measuring the flux coming from these distant objects, you can know what these uh, distances for those objects. That's one way of doing it. And that is the data you have to fit first to make sure that your model can fit at least that data, which goes up to Z equal to about 2.25, 2.3, something in that range. So redshift is still, is by the way, at, at that redshift, you are still talking about age of the universe greater than 10 giga years or yeah. billion years. So you are still talking about fairly, but it's still, it's, it's not, it's, it's, you are not reaching the cosmic dawn at this point. You are still very, it is called cosmic noon. We call it cosmic noon rather than this cosmic dawn, cosmic noon, and late um, universe, which is our universe and our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, sounds good. So you did mention the coupling constants as well. So maybe you could explain a little bit more about that. So first of all, uh, for the sake of our viewers, what are coupling constants and how can uh, they actually change over time? Like, what does this look like? Yeah, coupling constants are essentially represent the interaction between different particles. That's why they are called coupling. And yeah. normally, there are several coupling constants, but here we are dealing with the speed of light and the uh, gravitational constant and the uh, Planck constant and the Boltzmann constants. They are the ones which enter in my theory, and that's what I have considered at the point. But I have established a relationship how they should vary, even other constant if they are varying, I can tell how they would be varying if they are varying. So these coupling constants, their variations was predicted by Paul Dirac, Nobel laureate Paul Dirac, who who predicted their variation back in 1937. And mainly of the gravitational constant and the fine structure constant, they considered those one at that point. Later on, uh, more than 20 years ago, there was a review paper in which 
the French astronomer Cousin, he said that if one constant varies, then other would be varying too. He, he did not think constant should vary. And he is, he, he is definitely a, an advocate against the variation of the constant. But he said if constants vary, then they would vary uh, in a correlated way, essentially. And this is what I have used, the, and one of the reasons people could not determine the variation of the constant is because they were considering one constant only varying at a time, like gravitational constant they want to measure while keeping all the other constant fixed at their current value. But if the constant are moving or co-varying, varying together, then if you constrain one constant, then you're automatically constraining the constant you are measuring to, trying to measure its variation. So essentially you are defeating your purpose. Either you allow all of them to vary or you won't be able to measure them. And I have shown, I have published several papers on this subject showing that they cannot measure these variations like gravitational constant by uh, various astrometric observations like the how the moon goes around the earth or earth goes around the sun and other planets goes around, their period should be influenced by the gravitational constant if it is varying. But then there are other factors in there. If those constants are varying and even the distance itself is measured in terms of the speed of light, if your distance itself will be varying, as a result, you will not be able to measure the period. Period will not vary. It will vary. So you will assume gravitational constant is not varying. Mm. But that's not true. Because there's a cancellation effect between the various constants which are involved in determining that variation of the constant. Mm. Right. And so... Um... Is there a sort of like reason why the, these coupling constants will be linked? Like their variation would be related to yes. each other? Yes. Actually, I, I was looking for it for, for some time, why they should be varying. And what I have determined that they are co-varying, and I will tell you why they are co-varying. But that co-variation doesn't say that they do vary. I say, if they vary, they will be co-varying, okay? Yeah. But now, why they should be varying, and why should they be varying in a certain relationship with them? Why they should be varying, that is very difficult to say. But I can say why, how they should be correlated is that the all constants, or the constants, many constants involve the if you do the dimensional analysis of these constants, then you say, okay, the one dimension is length, another dimension is time, and another dimension is mass. And in some cases, it's also the temperature. So these, if you notice in them, the length dimension, the length dimension could be, for example, in gravitational constant, uh, the length dimension is L to the power three. Length, length is L to the power 3. So if you see what is the variation there, so L to the power 3 determines that it will vary cubic power of the length. Whereas in the speed of light, it is length divided by time. 
to length, it will vary as the single power of length. And if you see the Boltzmann constant, it involves the length to the square to the power two. So it will vary as length to the power two. And similarly, uh, Planck constant involves again length to the power two. So that is the way I didn't know that. I determined it before, uh, without that by certain other arguments, but really somebody, one of somebody reading my paper pointed this thing. John Hunt from UK, John Hunter. He he pointed out this thing, and then I say, yeah, that's a very neat, neat way of knowing how even a complicated equation, you find the dimension of that equation and you can find out how the whole equation might be varying. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's really interesting. So uh, we'll just take a quick break here and uh, we'll be back in a moment with our uh, guest, uh, Rajendra Gupta, with talking about uh, cosmology and the evolution of the universe. If you're enjoying this episode, we ask that you donate to the International Climate Science Coalition or ICSC at icsc-climate.com to help us pay for the show. We get about 50,000 listeners per program, so it's certainly worth continuing. Please visit icsc-climate.com and click on the red donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage. Once again, that's icsc-climate.com. Help us bring our program, The Other Side of the Story, to thousands more. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix Rx is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. 
Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution. The miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. So we're back with uh, Dr. Rajendra Gupta talking about physics of the early universe. And I'd like to ask you if you think that scientists will ever find a theory of everything that could explain the full extent of the laws of nature. I know many scientists have been trying to 
find this for many years, but do you think this is a this is really possible to find? Actually, that's a very difficult question. Yes. <laughs> uh, one of the thing is normally the physicist mean what they mean about theory of everything is something which can explain or relate the theory of gravity, quantum mechanics, weak forces, strong forces, electromagnetic forces, everything, how they came into being. That's what they call theory of everything. But theory of everything for many viewers might mean can explain how my atoms are built or how biological systems are built, how the leaves grow, and all kinds of things which could, or how the consciousness comes into existence in human being. And all these things, can they be explained? So if you say that about the theory of everything, the way physicists think, I think there might be the possibility that it might be uh, developed sooner or later. But the theory of everything in terms of everyday person, then I don't think there is a possibility within the time we will exist on this earth, it might be possible to explain everything around us. No, I don't believe that. Yes. So for the, the physics theory of everything, how uh, far off do you think that might be? Like how close do you think we are to really kind of uniting quantum physics and gravitational uh, and general relativity and the other the other topics? I think it's any any thing is very difficult to put a timeline on that. It's it's not technology whose development is progressive. Uh, your this kind of development in the field of physics or science, these are basic, very fundamental things. They can develop tomorrow or they can take centuries. We don't know. It is centuries, which is very difficult to say. Mm, yeah, for sure. And uh, do you think there are any uh, sort of theories that are more promising than others? So like any kinds of like quantum gravity or uh, string theory, do you think any of those look more promising? Yeah, they, they are all going in parallel. And I think uh, at this time, it is very difficult to say. People, Some people will say string theory is very promising. Others will say quantum gravity will come out uh, ahead. Or some people might say they are really interlinked with each other. So it, it's, it's for me, I'm not expert in that field. So I'm really, it is not proper for me to comment on what the experts are doing at this point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, definitely fair. And uh, in terms of your work, how have other scientists been uh, receptive of your findings? Do you think that they've been kind of, uh, you know, in, in agreement with you or posing problems with it? Actually, there are some scientists I have uh, received from them very good comments. But most of them are skeptical, as I would be if I was one of them, and some something like this is proposed, and I have been working for a long time using certain theory, and suddenly somebody comes and says this theory needs to be improved or modified, then I would be very skeptical 
myself. So yes, a lot of people are skeptical, but there is the that's the normal process in any scientific field. You come up with something new and people like it. Most of the new theories go on the wayside. They 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 don't get anywhere. The others do make progress and sometimes they are they become mainstream. What I have been trying to do, once people have, I have heard certain interviews about my theory, some are very long, hour and a half long or something, and I like the criticism they have made and what I have yet to be seen. Although in my paper I have mentioned that certain things, critical things have to be still proven before this theory could be even considered for by other people to be taken seriously. So, and those things are like the cosmic microwave background. Can it explain the the anisotropies? It can explain isotropy in that, but the mine, very minute anisotropies which exist in the cosmic microwave background, thermal spectrum, they are not explained by many theories. And they are saying, can it explain that? Second is the baryonic, baryon acoustic oscillations. These are the galactic galaxies, there are billions of galaxies in the universe. And if they were originated due to the perturbation in the early universe or primordial universe, then these perturbations should decide how these galaxies are distributed. So there should be two-point correlation functions between this. If you study that correlation function, that gives rise to a certain scale because these correlations should then evolve in time and should be measurable in terms of their angular characteristics. So what I have done is lately I have done the this so-called the bow. This is called bow baryon baryon acoustic oscillation BAO. This test I have done on my model and it passes that test with flying colors. Similarly, another test is microwave background. I have, that is a very complicated. Uh, uh, I see it requires the development of very complicated code and we are working on it, but it's one part of it is that you try to find out the so-called oscillations in the plasma resulting in the early primordial plasma, which is resulting from baryons and photon uh, fluid. And what are the oscillations in them? And they give rise to so-called the sound horizon. And that can be, that is seen in the anisotropy of the microwave background. So that, the, that angular separation of such anisotropies, the, the, uh, the premier one, the leading uh, part of that, we have, it is the sound horizon and angular diameter, angular size of that, our model comes up with exactly the same number as that provided we put the baryon density, about 6% of the critical uh, density of the universe. Now, 
I don't know whether I'm getting a little bit too technical here. But yeah, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, just before you go on, maybe you could explain uh, what are baryonic acoustic oscillations and uh, also just a bit more about the cosmic microwave background. Actually, I'm not sure everyone's familiar with, with those. Okay. What I will say that baryons are all the things, all the matter which we see around it. We are made of baryons because these are called and because why what why what astronomers or astrophysicists distinguish is the baryon matter, the kind of matter we can deal with every day, and the dark matter, the matter which we cannot see and it doesn't interact with the matter we can see around that is called so this is matter baryon matter and the, and the photons themselves in the in the primordial thing they that matter what the dark matter does not interact with the photons but the baryons do but as a result they, they, when the density was very high then we didn't have atoms or molecules or anything everything was electrons were not attached to the atoms and as a result there was a you might say electron and protons and helium nuclei and all the other elements which were present at that time not too many were present at that time and they were in kind of thermal equilibrium you might say with the photons and that fluid itself just like the if you throw a pebble in a river, you will see the waves coming out, perturbations, we might say, oscillations coming out, similar kind of oscillations where they are in, the, in that plasma. And those things were the ones which were causing, eventually, when the atoms did form, they, the original oscillations were still imprinted in the photons which were emitted from that plasma at the time of recombination of the electrons and the atoms. And these oscillations which are imprinted, they can be seen, they were seen by the Planck satellite. There were various satellites which launched for this purpose, but I'm referring to just the Planck satellite because that has the highest possible resolution and they were measured with that. And these angular sizes are the key thing in determining the size of the horizon. We don't know how far it is, so we don't know physically scale of that, but we, we know the angular size. So what it requires knowing what the, there's one adjustable parameter in that one, which is the baryon density as compared to the so-called critical density. Now. Do I have to explain the critical density too? Uh, yeah, I think that would be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, the critical density of the universe is, it takes into account of everything, whether it's dark energy, whether it's dark matter, or baryonic matter, everything together, combined together, it gives you the total density. We take it in terms of the energy density of that. So when we say 6% of the critical density, means 6% of the matter we see around us is constitutes 6% of the critical, this critical density of total energy density of the universe, baryon 
constitute only about 6% or 5% of energy density. Lambda CDM model comes up with about 5%. Our model is coming up with about 6% for fitting uh, this sound horizon data. Okay, yeah, interesting. So um, what about your plans for future research? How do you uh, plan to go forward with the model you're working on now? Actually, our, our aim is to really test it critically. One is the, as I mentioned, one of the tests we have carried out already mm -hmm. after publication of the last paper. So people are not aware of it. Uh, and I should be publishing that very soon. Then, then we still have to test the complete CMB spectrum. The spectrum is not only just the one I have said, but the, when we observe those anisotropies, they can be resolved into a full spectrum. And that is called the power spectrum, a thermal power spectrum of the cosmic microwave background. So we have to see whether we can reproduce the full spectrum with our model. And that yeah. requires development of a very special code, which is very time consuming and uh, very difficult code. And we are working on that. One of my graduate students is working currently on that. And hopefully that will, because we got this very sound horizon result very promising, we are expecting that cosmic microwave background fit a spectrum fit will also be very good, but we never know until we have done the work. Yes, Second sure. thing, what we have to do is, which is another critical thing, is the the uh, creation of the elements, which we call at the Big Bang nucleosynthesis. At mm -hmm. the time of Big Bang, the few minutes after that, all the elements, not all the elements, a lot of elements are created in the stars. But early elements, primordial elements, like uh, mostly helium from hydrogen and some amount of lithium and other elements, light, very light elements were created at that time. So we want to see if we can show that our model can create those atoms in the abundances which they are have been observed. So that is very critical. One other thing I should mention that lambda CDM model cannot properly predict the abundance of the lithium. Not mm -hmm. atoms, I should have said, because there are no atoms at that time. They are just the nuclei of these things. So I should say just the elements. So these elements were not really, uh, lithium was calculated is about four times the observed ones. So that is a, called the lithium problem of the big beam. We have to see if this can be resolved with, with our model or not. But if it is not resolved, if we are still in the same ballpark as the lambda CDM model, we are still okay. But these are some of the we can we do, but then the other tests will have to be done there. Lambda CDM model is everywhere, you know. And mm -hmm. so there will be, but once we have shown these tests, are giving the right results, or they essentially consistent with the observations, our model is consistent with the observations of these critical observations, I should say, then people will be more convinced in trying to do their own research using this model. Until then, I think they will remain skeptical. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's always important to have a 
of tests and make sure that you can kind of reproduce what, what we already do know. So when you're uh, doing your research, you're on more on the theoretical side, I believe. And then the experimentalists will use your results for testing the data or you would be using your results for um, making like computer computer models. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So essentially the theory is already there. Now we have to, for testing any data, we have to have a model to test that data, you know. So theory has to be developed to be able to test that model. So this is a ongoing process for various things. But these are, once we have these critical things done, yes, I should mention another critical thing people criticize about. The age of the universe is also determined by the age of the oldest stars. So stars cannot be older than the universe. And some of the stars have been shown to be older than the universe. And some of the stars which were shown to be older than the universe in the past, then once the age of the universe was established to be 13.8 by the billion years by various observations, then people have tried to find a reason why they were somewhat older and they have tried to adjust their models of the evolution of a star to fit this timeline, essentially, you might say. So this is, as I said, they can also fit the timeline for the creation of galaxies at the cosmic dawn the same way. But stars was, stars age is very much model dependent and globular clusters are the oldest clusters supposed to have been created at the dawn of the cosmic dawn. So they think if we can find the age of the stars in the globular cluster or oldest star in the globular cluster, that will should give us the age of the universe. Mm. Problem is that is model dependent. So if something is model dependent, then can that be considered as a determining factor of the age? You can always adjust the model to really comply with the age. Another thing, for example, people say, okay, how can it be? We determine the age of the age of the universe, age of sun is de determined based on the uh, radioactivity of the elements in meteorites, for example. And they appear to give the age of the solar system to be about 4.6 billion years. And then, of course, they have the solar model adjusted to fit that data. And they say, so age of the universe, age of the uh, meteorites gives the age of the solar system. But how do you determine age of the meteorites? Again, they are depending on the constant. But if the constants are varying, as in, our, in what I propose, then you have to take that into account in determining the age of the meteorites. Now, once you determine the age of the meteorite, and then you determine the age of the sun and you say age of sun, the sun is dependent on certain models and those models will then be modified to account for a longer age of meteorite if they, that is affected due to the variation of the constants. So all these things are related with each other. So just somebody says because age of the globular cluster, the star in the globular cluster, it is more compliant with the uh, the 
13.8 giga years of the universe, that doesn't hold much water. Yeah, for sure. And uh, something else I want to ask is, if you look at like the history of kind of scientific uh, endeavor and understanding the universe, what do you think was one of the major breakthroughs? Like, was it Einstein or like some other scientists? Oh, that's, that's a very good question and requires some thinking. Mm -hmm. I think the history of science, you, you, it depends on how far you want to go. Because, you know, uh, Newton was definitely a, a great Newton, Galileo. I, I don't know. I, it's very difficult. But if you consider in the last 100, 200 years, then definitely Einstein stands out. Definitely, that's that's the one. But really, Newton was extremely important in creating a civil system in physics and mathematics and astronomy. Mm, yeah, for sure. So, uh, before we end our interview, are there any other uh, things you'd like to mention? Any um, upcoming uh, things in science that you're excited about, or things that you're working on? Yes, uh, actually, I, I'm very interested in AI and quantum computing. For example, in many times, people see that AI can resolve everything and make us totally redundant eventually, or they could create huge problem for us too. Like the, uh, so I think I think that. A lot of issues about that, but I'm optimistic that if we can handle the atomic bomb and hydrogen bomb, and they created more civility in our life rather than disturbing it in spite of the tensions we have now. So we are in a very early stage of AI at this point. And I believe that we will be able to tame AI the same way as we were able to tame the nuclear threat, you might say. Nuclear threat is still exists. But the problem is, I was just thinking about it. If anybody launches that nuclear thing, all the satellites will become perhaps useless because of a huge surge of electromagnetic radiation, which might. And that means it will not benefit anybody, attacker or, or attacked party with that. Mm -hmm. So so I think this perhaps is one reason because we so much depend on our communication in guidance systems or whatever is there depends on these satellites. And if these satellites are not operational because of this uh, problem that if one launches a this kind of weapon it will create an electromagnetic pulse which will destroy a lot of these communication systems. Yeah. I don't think there, there is a threat about that. And I think I I think AI is a problem, but I think we should be able to control it. For me, personally, I have a problem with AI in my teaching classes. I don't know what kind of assignment I should be giving to my students. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, can, they can easily find a solution anywhere for those assignments. So we have to now do it very differently, you know. Judging yeah, for sure. The students have to be very different now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely a lot of uh, amazing things in AI. It's hard to keep up with all of it. 
Well, uh, thanks so much for being on the show today. So today we were interviewing Dr. Rajendra Gupta from the University of Ottawa. And uh, it was great to talk to you. So thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me on the show. I'm so grateful you did. Thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, we ask that you donate to the International Climate Science Coalition or ICSC at icsc-climate.com to help us pay for the show. We get about 50,000 listeners per program, so it's certainly worth continuing. Please visit icsc-climate.com and click on the red donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage. Once again, that's icsc-climate.com. Help us bring our program, The Other Side of the Story, to thousands more. 